Hi, I'm Jason with Little Blades, and you're listening to the Bladeology Podcast. All right, so we're going to jump into this like we do every week. Welcome to another episode of the Bladeology Podcast. We are on with a very special guest this week. Uh, first things first, I'm Jeremiah Burbank from PVK Vegas. Nick Chuprin of NCC Knives. Reese Weiland of Reese Weiland Knives. Nice. That's awesome. Okay. Uh, so this is awesome. We've, we've been working on, we're working on getting you on here and, uh, and talking knives for a while. We're going to go over some uh, some crucial parts of, of switchblade history tonight and uh, and cover many, many uncharted territories yet to be podcasted. Uh, a little shameless plug. We did um, recently kick off our Patreon and our website. So everybody out there, it's uh, www.bladeologypodcast.com. If you get a second, swing on by. And if you're so inclined, do... Uh, do check out the Patreon. And if you're double inclined, feel free to donate and keep this awesome content rolling. That aside, let's uh, let's get into it. Uh, Reese, what are you yeah. working on this week? What am I working on? Um, getting remotivated into making knives. No. Um, actually, uh, my next thing is uh, I'm grind, I've got to grind some Guardian Tactical uh, blades. And then I'm uh, working on... Um, uh, butterflies. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, that's, um, that's right. So you do some, uh, you do some custom hand ground, uh, work for those guys. Yep. What, uh, so are those the recons or are those the, the full size? Uh, it's about three inches long. Okay. So that's going to be the, the recon and what are they're, you doing? Um, daggers, daggers and, uh, the daggers and single edge. Okay. Yeah. Those are, um, those are pretty cool, actually. The Recon Thirty Five from uh, Guardian Tactical is a dual action OTF that uh, I think is a is a pretty novel advancement to the whole OTF thing. They uh, patented a ball bearing system, so the switch rides on ball bearings on a steel plate, which makes the action very smooth. Um, uh, I remember talking with them about I, it at Blade Show with you. Yeah, yeah, they're they're that was their real advancement and they patented i think i think it's nice i've handled many of those knives and i I really like them actually um how did uh well we'll we'll get into that uh let's (laughs) let's jump back let's jump back a little bit reese um let's let's do some history talk how did how did we get here where did uh where did you get into knife making were were you uh a hobbyist a collector uh kid who loved knives tell us uh kid who liked making stuff all right, all right. So, well, in the beginning was the word. All right. Anyway, um, let me see. I, I guess knives wise, uh, I got interested in knives kind of backwards. I got interested in, you know, swords and fantasy axes and things like this. I wrote a lot of Con- uh, Conan the Barbarian comics when they didn't get confiscated. Um stuff like that. So I just always, always liked that kind of thing. And I had a favorite uncle that was, uh, up in, uh, Savannah, Georgia. And the guy was, you know, every, every young boy's idea of, you know, hot damn, he was, you know, an overweight Indiana Jones with a very bad Southern accent. <laughs> um, 
but he it, seriously he was you know he was an amateur archaeologist he was a uh you know he would go he was a fisherman he was a outdoorsman he was uh let's recreate the 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 stuff the way the indians did it i mean he was one of those guys you know uh, yeah that's a, that's like uh, that stereotype to a t <laughs> you, you, you know what i'm talking about i mean he's just like that yeah <laughs> you know just the whole cut it with a knife deep south and uh but you know his house was like on you know on blocks and the back of it was a swamp and we'd go out in the backyard and shoot the rifles i mean it was like oh you know so it's oh favorite time of year we're going out let's go see bobby yeah you know and that was that was my thing uh and he made his own knives and he made his knives out of uh Whatever he could find, an old file, you know, uh, a resaw blade, whatever. He didn't really care. Um, and one year uh, for Christmas, he got me Charles Boyer's How to Make Knives. Remember that book? Anybody that old? Uh, <laughs> no, but I've seen it. I want to yeah. say 1974. I know the book. <laughs> oh, geez, wow. Okay, to, to give that, and the only reason I know that date, because I, I just another thing, I'm kind of bad about dates, but the only reason I know that date, remember it, is that it still has the Barnes and Noble's price sticker on it that happens to have the date. Oh, there we go. See? <laughs> on the nice. sticker. Or nice. I would not have nice a clue. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, the, yeah, oh yeah, the book, the back of the book is Shaw Leibowitz, how to, how to etch blades. I mean, it, it's, we're blowing the dust off now, guys, really. But, um, and here's a little quick sidebar. Many, 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 many years later, uh, you guys familiar with William Henry? Yeah, of course. Yep. Okay. The guy that owns, or does, actually, it's not the guy that owns it. The guy that runs William Henry is named Matt Connable. Hmm. Matt Connable married Charles Boyer's daughter. Oh, how about and that? All right. I was able to help William Henry get started. I was their original supplier of their screws, and I bought all their Ivory Macarta for them. Hmm. So wow. we we would yeah so we got all kind of interesting little fingers in history pies all over the building is kind of neat okay sidebar aside back to making that so I started messing around doing this stuff and uh, the whole thing about that book is it's about getting these big saw blades out of the woods that they use for the old sawmills they go out there and they just throw the blades out in the woods when they when they got dull. And they were all, I don't know, W3 or something, W something. And um, you would cut them up with a torch way oversized. They'd grind them down so you didn't so you ground away all the stuff that you annealed with the torch. And you'd make a knife out of it. Hmm. And that was his thing, you know, grind out all the pits and so on and so on. And so that's what my uncle did. Now, he would put – he just glued them into deer antler and, you know, there was no guard on them. There was nothing like that. He just – He'd make a little guard out of epoxy just to cover the end of the thing. I mean, very crude stuff, but, uh, you know, 10, 11-year-old kid, you know, why not? I'm yeah, looking at be, this stuff. That would be every, awesome at that age. Yeah. Every place you sit down, there's a knife next to you somewhere. Hmm. Uh, there were guns, too, but I was encouraged strongly not to pick them up between the seats because they were all loaded. Uh, hmm. Oh, man, he was a character. By the back of his house, there was a barn. You know, which looking back on it, I was a real fool to go in this barn because it was incredibly dangerous. It, it, it looked like it was going to fall down any minute and there was no telling what was going to crawl out from underneath something. 
That's a good so, barn right there. That's a good barn. But it was, you know, deer antlers hanging on the rafters. And I mean, you know, it's just, it's like, ooh, let's go party. And, you know, we're filthy and, you know, the whole bit. But um, anyway, so that was my introduction to knives. And, I, you know, reading the book and looking at stuff. And one of the things about the book was the knives were better finished than what my uncle did. My uncle, his thing was I wanted to cut. I wanted to use. So he had he had knives for every purpose. He had knives that were little quarter inch long blades. Uh, he had a little double-edged knife on a little tiny, 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 tiny staghorn. He carried in his lunchbox every day to work. And I said, what do you got these for? Oh, those are my snakeskin and knives. Oh, you know, right. he'd see a snake on the side of the road, stick the shotgun out the window, shoot the snake, skin it up, and that was lunch. <laughs> custom. Uh, very custom. So that but, uh, yes, we're talking definite deep south. Yeah. All, All right. right. Well, so that was my introduction. So um, I got to a point one time when I um, – I asked my dad for a bench grinder for Christmas and he went and got me a, uh, my first bench grinder was a Dayton one third horsepower. I, I don't know. God, I can't believe I remember this one third horsepower bench grinder, you know, just huh. a rock. Grinder. Now my, I lived across the street from my, uh, my grandmother, aunts and uncles on my mother's side. And, uh, my grandfather is another character. He was uh, uh, he was originally from the coal mines up in Virginia, moved down to Savannah, Georgia. Now this is World War II. Now beginning of World War II, he uh, somehow or another did not end up drafted. So he was either too old or something. Uh, but he owned the first Hudson dealership. Like the car it's Hudson. Car Hudson, yes. Wow. And he would tell me stories. He says, yes, during the Depression, um, the guys would come in and they wouldn't have the money to fix the car. So he said, yeah, we had some black fellas could tear a car down in 15 minutes. And we'd tell what it was and just tell them what the price was. And if they couldn't pay for it, we'd wrap it all up in cosmoline and, and duck cloth and stick it in the trunk and park it in the field. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. You know, but he also owned the radio station and mm. the record company. So he was, he was very well to do. And, um, and that's where my dad, who was definitely the poor side of the tracks from Virginia, met my mother through in that situation. So she was like a debutante and he was, you know, he was like roadkill. <laughs> um, but they, uh, not really, but, uh, you that's know, a brief sidebar on my dad. He was uh, he was not the oldest. He was in the middle, uh, but he was a polio child, and hmm. uh, one leg was an inch shorter. Uh, and back then, they put you in uh, you went in these special hospitals because they couldn't treat you. They just put you in the hospital basically to isolate you. And yeah, they would put you somewhere. You, yeah, and they would put you somewhere. And if you died, you died. And if you lived, you lived. Basically, yeah, there you go. Flip so the so for like two years, his parents never visited him. Wow. He was alone. And uh, so they got, you know, they finally got, I think it was two years. That's hard to believe it'd be two years, but I don't know. Anyway, long time. So he ended up growing up. They told him he'd be in a wheelchair by the time he was 25 or 30. And he's like, you know, F you, not doing that. So he went to Florida Southern, became an engineer. So I guess you could say that's where I got some of this. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, a civil engineer, uh, he oh. helped build the power plant down here. 
but uh, or he was on the engineering team for it. But uh, he wound up in the Air Force. Now, uh, he's got one leg that's short. Well, the weird thing was uh, he didn't let that slow him down. He actually boxed Golden Gloves. Wait, really? He boxed Golden Gloves with one leg short. I asked him, I said, how did that work out? He said, I was really hard to hit. Yeah, there you go. See? Makes the bobbin and weaving part a lot easier. Well, his gait was funky. So they could, <laughs> he said they couldn't time me. Mm. So uh, that's, you know, that's the sidebar. All right. So anyway, uh, I had a neighbor down the street. I lived basically off of downtown Tampa when I was growing up. And I want to say 15, 16 years old Uh, neighbor down the street. She had three boys. One of them at the time was, you know, old enough to be married. And uh, they were pretty easy going, but they liked – she was always in this contest with her son to figure out a present that she could get him that he couldn't guess what it was. You know, one of those uh, that, you know, all right, I'm going to put it in a box. I'm going to put a brick in there and I'm all this. And you can't guess what it is, you know, kind of thing. And he'd always guess. So she was determined. So she she saw that I made these I made, you know, some just some junky swords and stuff like this, because that's what I was into. And she said, I want to I want you to make me a couple of I want you to make me two bowie knives. I want you to use good stuff. And uh, so they're so they're actual knives because my son, he he's on a ranch and uh, rides horses all the time and he needs a bowie knife. You know, it's a tool for him. So I'm like, okay. so uh, I went and bought a steel uh, 440C as it happens. And uh, I ground these two bowie knives on the side of my grandfather's bench grinder on the side of the stone. You know, then hand sanded the things out. Oh, yay! That was fun. Yeah, that's like on the on, on the edge uh, of the stone. Outside, the yeah, to make a flat grind. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it works, but you know, it's a I forget thirty six grit stone. You know, so like it works, yeah, but it's also one way to blow up a wheel, as you know. That they're not yeah, meant for yeah, side well, blow. It wasn't a ten inch. It was like a six, but still, you're absolutely right. I didn't know anything about that part of it, but. That's what I did. I didn't have any other way to do anything with it. Uh, and I sold the knives, uh, sold the knives to her. Those were the first two knives I ever sold. Uh, just stag handles and a guard. And I think my grandfather helped me solder the guard on and, you know, which cured me of soldering. Yeah. You were like, I'm all set with that. Yeah. No, I'm, 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 I'm absolutely certain that if I never have to solder anything ever again, I'll be ecstatic. It'll be too soon. Yeah. Well, it was funny because I, I, I then went on to they, – they taught me how to be a, uh, a welding fabricator, and, and part of it was doing brazing. Oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. Well, Not that you can listen, but it looks good. Yeah. So anyway, and you can't use acetylene on it because you end up with a soft blade. But not to mention it's fun to clean the oxidation off. Yeah static with that anyway so um i was doing that stuff so that was the first of that and saved up some money uh made a couple of other odds and ends and um eventually bought a uh old school baiter uh that had the round shank Hmm. (laughs) on the on the uh tooling arms so you had to put the tooling arm in it then you had to tilt it to where it would track (laughs) all right let's go oh my gosh uh, I don't, I, yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of baiters with those. Uh, well, the new ones I like, but 
Well, I, I've used that. those old ones because uh, I'm, I'm close friends with Rob Carter. I've been to the shop many times, but uh, I'm, I, I worked on a lot of Joe. I'm pretty sure you know Joe. Yeah. He's talked about you in the past. Yeah. Well, he broke up there for a second. Yeah. yeah I, Joe Pardue. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know the Pardue's. Yeah, he's talked about it in the past, but he has like 20, 30-year-old baiters in that shop. So I ran those. Yeah. They're paying in the ass because the the tracking isn't really the wheel, but it's the whole platen or wheel you have to actually oh, tilt. wheel tilts over to the side. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's a round shaft. It, it made no sense. It makes no sense. Well, the the new ones, they uh, they actually tilt the, uh, tra- the, the idler wheel. So yeah. uh, which is a whole lot better. It's it's actually it's similar to uh, the Burking, uh, hmm. but with a different tensioner. It works similar. Anyway, um, so Louise, I got huh? I, Go ahead. I, I know you're I know you're spotty on dates, but what 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 year approximately do you think this is when you got the Bader? Just just for a reference. Uh, you'd have to do the math for me. Um, I'm fifty. Well, I'll be 58 this year. Uh, 58, and my first two knives I sold when I was 16. Wow. Okay. All right. Just keeping track. Cool. So I don't know what's that, 43 years? Damn. So, yeah, doing this a while. Uh, but I'm only counting from the ones, the first ones I made to sell. Because I there honestly don't remember. I think I made the first knife. I was 11. Mm. But uh, back then I was making stuff like uh, I made a, a wooden replica 45 with a slide that worked oh there you go nice. all out of wood um i made a scale replica of a uh i want to say it was a 40 millimeter and a tank gun <laughs> okay yeah you wow. know even got, yeah. even got like trailer wheels for it and the whole bit mm. uh made the shrouds and and all that you know i mean it didn't it didn't slide or nothing but it all out of lumber it was it was different so where did i just realize that Go ahead, Nick. I just realized that the math. I made. I also made my first knife at eleven and sold my first one at sixteen. There you go. There's the same 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 dates. Fellow veterans, yes. So where I'm did about you? I'm about I'm about twenty four. So. Oh, okay. So not quite that close, but we're getting there. No, I, I've done it for most of my life, though. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that's the truth. And as you go on. Uh, one of the things I appreciate about this whole deal, the, this this interview thing, uh, to share some of the stories and stuff, you know, it's becoming more and more apparent that uh, nobody knows this stuff. Right. You know, I mean, it's it's just lost in the mists of time, you know, and uh, all the little sidebars. I mean, because like some of the stories I'll share with you guys. There are people that know those stories, and of course the principals know the stories, but they're you know it, they're not like known. They don't, nobody ever put them in a magazine. Sure. Nobody ever did, you know. So that like immortalized in print, and you know, uh, uh, so that that's why I, you know I've always been open to yeah. You want to do you want to do like a how to thing? I mean, uh, they've talked to me. Um, um, uh, oh shoot. Hmm. I'm having a si- I'm having a sinus break. Um, anyway, no. Uh, one of the knife supplies. Um, like knife or kits, something. Knife kits. Oh, knife kits. Okay. Knife kits. Just said, yo, I'm gonna. I'll send a video crew down. You know, you do something, whatever. And I, and I said, whatever, anytime. And they never did yeah. it. 
Yeah, well, they haven't. Yeah, they haven't ever done it. But it, it's it's like, you know, I don't I don't mind doing that because I'm like, look, some of the stuff I mean, you know, you know, you've been you've been making knives a while. Uh, one of you. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's um, you, you, you get these little quirky things you get used to doing. You don't even think about doing them. And somebody comes in and look at it and say, wait, what did you do? You know, and, and then they hit you with the million dollar question. Why? Did you do that? You know, and um, I've taught a lot of people to make knives. So I've, I've been blessed to be able to have spent time actually trying to think about how to explain that. Yeah. And I know exactly yeah. what you mean. Now, I've had a few presences over the years and they're always surprised at how quick and simple i get to a solution because they'll do something it's like yeah this took me eight hours and i'm like you know if you did this this and that you'll do it only 20 minutes exactly. you also sell this tool and besides that my dad's been full-time on me for going on like eight nine months now and now i have to actually teach him consistently and how to do things yep. and pretty much teach him all my tips and tricks yep. and that's also all the little you know all the little nuances like for example yep. setting a lock and how you get blade play if it's at the back and not the front yeah, things like that that I asked him we, at the blade we, show. I said, "Look, I want to do. I'll do. I'll do a lecture at the blade show for you. All right. I mean, you don't get paid to do that. I'll just do it because I want to do it. I said, you know. And I was what I was going to do is I said, listen, diagnosing uh, locking liner problems. That's a, that's a good one. To, that's a really good one to do because there's, as you know, there's a million reasons something's there's off, a and especially and especially sticking issues. And there's a bunch of fixes." There's a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of fixes. Yeah, that's what we're going through with my dad. He he kind of sets my locks for the most part. I, yep. I he he knows how to diagnose blade play now, and he never they never have play at anymore. But sticking issues, there's just so many problems that cause sticking that I just can't teach him that. Because like I'm like I'll say I just can't. There's like 102 different reasons why a knife is sticky. Yep. And then you flame you flame your locks. Uh, no, just because of uh, some of the milling and stuff like that, I uh-huh. never seen it to do much of a difference. I do the, carburize them, however. Well, that actually will increase your sticking issues. Well, what I do if I, I have an issue, I'll carburize it. If I have issues after that, I'll, oh, if you have I'll an issue, use a, okay, that's different. Yeah, I hmm. actually have a, a mixture of cutting oil and graphite powder. Okay. Uh, That'll sometimes like I don't go to that one every time, but if like I, if I tried everything, like, any right. easy fix, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll get the graphite or cutting oil mix, put it on the lock face, and have them open there about twenty times. That usually mm-hmm. always fixes it because it's literally just grinding the surfaces to mate properly. Um, but it's messy. Yeah, you need sacrificial bearings, stuff like that. I tell you what, you can try in lieu of the oil and, and graphite thing. Uh, try grease pencil. I've used that not the same because it's not abrasive, really. Hmm. No, well, you don't I want do it to have... be abrasive. You just want it to not stick. See, hmm. the reason the well, stuff I, I sticks... I use graphite as the abrasive. It doesn't really yeah. abrasive. You know, grease pencil is graphite in a binder. Oh, grease, black. Wait, just just grease pistol? Pencil. 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 Eyebrow pencil. Okay. Well, I was thinking, hmm. I thought like grease pen- pencil is what you said, but I was thinking about something else. Yeah, they, they used to call them grease pencils. Okay. They yeah, have them in different colors. I'm thinking like, marking on steel. 
Okay, that's exactly what I was thinking of. I didn't know that. I was about to say, I know grease pencil for marking steel and stuff like that. Sometimes called China markers, too. But those are wax-based. What I'm talking about is, is, is and, I, and I should have said this to begin with, I'm sorry, uh, is, an, is an eyebrow pencil, one of the black eyebrow pencils. I got to look into that because that's what I was thinking about, wax-based ones. I was like, that doesn't make sense, but I got to look into that. The, the eyebrow funny. pencils are, uh, they're, they're not wax. They're like an oil. Hmm. So that so that might work for that situation. But I, I tell you what I ended up doing. Um, I was having problems with the stick and I I I, I took a I, st- I started taking a file and cutting the sharp edge off the leading edge of my lock face. Uh, I do that on every knife. But sometimes yeah, when you round it, it, it actually causes sticking. I do that on a scotch bright wheel. No, I just I just take a file and knock the razor edge off. Well, I do the scotch for wheel because uh, so if you're water jetting your locks or like for me, I step mill it. Oh, yeah, so that be a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll just touch on the scotch uh, with a slitting saw, right? Yeah, I used to do a sitting, slitting saw, but the handles got so thick the slitting saw would walk. Mm. It'd get dull on one so, side, which is bizarre. But so it's when, like, when okay. you're using an end mill now? Yeah, I just, I just mill them. Okay, so I use an end uh, Unless they're really end mill. Unless they're thin liners. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, so I use a 360-fourths end mill, which is tiny, 46-thou, 47-thou. And I'll take 10-thou steps. And for the most part, the CNC is accurate enough to where the steps are minimal. But there's still there a hair. uh, And I'll just – because the end mill is too short to take a full width cut to clean it up. I have to do a half on each side. Uh, It's only like a 90-thou end mill. But you're you're only using that much on the lock anyway. Yeah, so I'll just, but I just like to uh, to blend it in with the scotch bright wheel on and simultaneously. I will round gotcha. over that corner, which does remove stick uh, gotcha. for the good amount. But I've also noticed times where I won't have stick when it's sharp because I forgot to round it over, and then yep. I'll go back and round it round it over, and now I have stick. Mm. <laughs> which um, that, that's what that's when I usually have issues fixing the stick. But I'm, I, I, I at some point I'll always fix it. Have you if, noticed? If it gets into my hands. A black line on the lock face of your blade. When you have stick, uh, a black line in the lock face. No, yeah, like a little black spot or a little black line. No, like marring. Well, it just—it's literally a black line. Uh, hmm. But what it actually is is you can, when you open the knife, especially when you flick the knives, they'll—they'll they'll create enough kinetic energy that uh, you'll actually weld a sharp edge or a thin edge to the back of the. Uh, steel in the blade and so you'll have sometimes where they'll crack 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 break loose and it's literally a weld line you broke uh so when you mm. when you oxidize that face that lock face on the on the lock bar uh the oxidation won't weld so it, it isn't a guaranteed fix but it does prevent that well i got you I, i've it probably i i made just oh, uh, I used to not do it at all. So I, I, I get you. I'm not trying to tell you change everything. No, I got you. I, just, no, I, made, I, I made a couple thousand knives. I probably made just over a thousand actual frame locks, and then those yeah. I probably heated four or five. Yep. Just because it was like I have no other options at this point. Yep. I'm just gonna try it. I'm stuck. But like, it's not a standard yeah. process of what I do. Yeah. Mm. It's uh, cool. Mainly because I do CNC the handles now. So absolutely. It'd be a pain it, in the butt really to clean it. it back up. Yeah, mine it, are it'll... Yep. Yeah, I just mm. I just sand both sides of mine and then I do all the profiling afterwards. So I'm not CNCing them. So uh yeah. so yeah, I, I get that. Yeah, that'd be a that'd be a real nuisance. 
I'm I'm putting us back with the with the Bader story with the okay. uh, when you got your Bader. All right, so my Bader, I got my. Where did I put it? Yeah. Oh, uh, in my parents' garage. I was still living at home. Um, nice. I made a uh, I made a stand for it with uh, wheels, and I would wheel it outside uh, at the garage door. Uh, mind you, not the garage door. Garage door that didn't open. The uh, the door door. You know the outdoor door. The actual door. And, door. Yeah, the access door. I don't know what you'd call it. The the door that went out the side of the house there. Person door. Uh, that was connected to the garage. Yeah, it was the laundry room and this little hallway thing. And then there was a, a garage garage, but they fixed it so the garage door didn't go up. They used it just as permanent storage with the door. They never put a car in it. Mm. Um, it was a little one-car job. I mean, at one point, I made it into a photography studio. You know, just, well, more of a lab than a studio, but. Great way to get the girls in the neighborhood to come by. Here, come by. I'll show you your picture. <laughs> that worked, right? Um, they always brought their boyfriends. It was not as fulfilling as it could have been. But anyway. Yeah, the plan didn't go as well as you thought. The plan did not go as well as it was intended. But in any event, they, uh, you know, nothing happened. But anyway, I, you know, I took the took the grinder outside and ground on it. Uh, my first grinder that I that I bought with the money from the two Bowie knives was a Kalamazoo two by forty eight. Who remembers those? Um, they still, I, they, they still, <laughs> they still make, make those. I had one of those. They still make that grinder, but had just, they're a little overpriced arm. these days. Yeah, I had that spring loaded arm on it, and. Um, I took and one side, yeah, one side was a bench grind, right? And I took um, what I did with that was uh, I bought a contact wheel from Chicago Rubber, and uh, so that was where I got my first serrated contact wheel because the one that came on it was a smooth, Mm. and uh, that made a huge difference. And I remember grinding the first couple of knives on that uh, freehand, but it was really it was really tricky because the, the wheel I got, I think, I think the biggest wheel I could put on it was six inches. I basically brought the wheel level with the stupid motor. (laughs) So left hand side, you know, you're banging your knuckles on there. You're having to kind of hold it with your fingertips. So I'll let you guess how accurate that was. And you know, grizzly version of that was the same thing. Yeah, man. I was like, yeah, great for chisel grinding. You got it. Uh, Yeah. Left-handed or right-handed. Uh, which is ironically enough, the correct side to grind one, but if you're right hand, but whatever. Um, and that was also so, 10 million RPMs a second. I mean, like whenever the thing was yeah, just full was, blast. Was like 30, yeah. 34. It was, it was flying. Hmm. Uh, I'm surprised it tracked actually, it tracked fairly well for kids. It was just hauling ass and I didn't break any belts. That was the other thing, <laughs> but the, um, I ended up saving up the money and I got the baiter. So the baiter comes in. And they had a sheet with how to wire it, right? And um, and then, of course, you had the plate on the motor. Now, I had already been messing around. Uh, my dad would drag me to work. We had a uh, – he was part owner of a paint factory. And uh, I kind of got stuck in with the, uh, the maintenance squirrel uh, who was actually a brilliant electrician. But all our stuff was all expl- – big old explosion-proof motors and stuff. I and mean, we had – 50 horse explosion proof motors. Uh, you could stand in them when you pulled the stator out. <laughs> they were big motors. Um, yeah, but, Jared, but it's probably, when it goes explosion proof, the motor gets double the size just because of the housing. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, uh, and we had a fabricator there. 
this old black guy taught me how to weld and all, but I mean, they scratch built like their explosion proof, uh, wiring boxes, uh, which was a real trip. I mean, he'd have to make the whole thing and they'd vapor check them in the whole bit. And, uh, it's like the guy was really good. Uh, but he taught me how to weld and, you know, cut and all that bit. And, uh, which just came in really handy because to this day, I'll still build my own machinery. And that's like a very serious savings, uh, and some little sidebar stuff that, you know, I lucked into that uh, taught me how to do some things that I would not have learned or it would have taken me a lot longer. Um, anyway, so uh, without getting too more scattered about this, we uh, went, got the baiter, ground some knives, progressed from there, eventually got to the point where uh, I talked my dad into letting me build a shop in the backyard. So I, I built myself by hand. Uh, uh, a 16 by 16 full framed building and I built it out like uh, it, so it looked like a um, a Pac-Man it wasn't round but it just had that notch out of it so it was uh, okay. 8 by 16 by 8 and then there was a section that mm-hmm. was like a porch and I eventually ended up closing it in because it ran out of space but uh, my first thing in there I had a uh, I had a full size, a full speed uh, disc grinder. Um, I had the baiter. Uh, I had a. I eventually got a uh, uh, Chinese mill, a Taiwan. Excuse me. Uh, still China. Depends on who you ask. Anyway, but uh, I got one a tabletop job. And I made a table with an oil deck in it and the whole bit for that with a cabin underneath it that I never used the oil deck part. So it was kind of pointless, but, you know, did that, put that back there, bolted it down. But it was one of the round column jobs where the head would, you know, swivel to the sides. Yeah, like the drill mills. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it was one of the real old ones where the column was like five inches. You know, it was one of the. Yeah, it's honestly, it's a, still the same design today. I had one of those too. <laughs> yeah, but the casting's not as thick. If you pull the, if you pull the cat, the casting's. Yeah, it's thick. a five inch, except yours is probably like three eighths, quarter inch tubing. Mine was quarter, like quarter inch, three sixteenths. Exactly. Uh, every machine that had one of those, I, even my drill presses, I just fill those things with concrete. Changes uh, it. I never thought of that. <laughs> honestly, that's well, a really there's good. A, there's a good tip. I, I Any new drill press I buy, head comes off. Make a concrete mix, or that some bitch in, and it, it it weighs a hell of a lot. But there's like no vibration to any of it. It makes everything that even on the mills it reduces so much chatter. Idea. Mm. Well, at the time yeah. I got the mill, uh, I got a uh, actually right before I got the mill, I met a gentleman at a gun show by the name of Ron Miller. And Ron Miller was a uh, master tool and die maker. And at the time I met him, he was the model shop supervisor for AMP, who makes all the electrical connectors that go back behind the computers. They yeah, say that's AMP, AMP Electrics. I, yeah, AMP Electronics. But he was in charge of the model shop. So he had the he had all his machinists, they had the engineering crew, and uh, they would make the prototypes. So he was around these really brilliant machinists all the time. And of course he was a, he was a, he was a tool and die maker himself. So he was, he wasn't any kind of slouch, but, uh, at the time, you know, I'm not, uh, I don't even remember how old I was, maybe 18, 17, All right. 
18, probably 18. But uh, he was, um, uh, I didn't have any way to make stuff flat. So I was paying him to, you know, surface grind stuff and, and mill guards. I was using 300 series guard material. I hadn't discovered for the joys of 416 yet. Uh, that kind of thing. So, you know, he was doing that stuff for me and, uh, I was selling, um, uh, I got into this deal where, uh, a friend of mine, I was going, uh, when we would go to Savannah to visit, we lived in Tampa and when we go to Savannah, it was always Christmas day and we were gone for roughly a week. And cause my, my father, my mother's relatives all lived in Savannah, uh, or, not all of them, but enough of them. So they would go visit. And uh, he did that once a year and he would take time off and he would go for roughly a week and we go to Savannah. Uh, and that's where my uncle lived up there. But when we did that, you know, there was a, uh, there was a gun show and a good friend of mine, he says, Hey, you got some knives. I want to go do the gun show, sit there and sell some stuff. You know, maybe I'll make a little bit. And I said, yeah, you keep some of the money. And he met this guy that had come up to Tampa from, um, Homestead, Florida, which is down near Miami. And uh, Tampa's in the, kind of in the middle on the coast. Uh, but Homestead's the other coast, but down towards Miami. Anyway, this guy, uh, his name was Tom Schreier. And he was selling knives to the um, uh, to the uh, reserve, uh, the uh, Army Reserve units that were stationed at Homestead. Mm. And they were all going, we really want a switchblade knife. So he says, okay, you know, whatever. So he, so in the meantime, he's buying, uh, this is the first Rambo movie to help you out okay. with. Dates. Okay. I remember yeah. that, you know, everybody was crazy about let's do saw teeth knives. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I ginned up a way to make without a mill, uh, saw teeth, on the back of a knife with a, um, a chop saw wheel. And, uh, I took the rest of my grinder and jacked it up in the air. And I, I zigzag cut my, my teeth with just the, the, uh, with a little five inch wheel. Hmm. And, uh, uh, that was an aggressive sucker. So, so wait, so these were big sawtooth knives, like fixed blades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, uh, well, like the Rambo knife, but I didn't make, uh, mine were, uh, mine were a drop point, like a spear point type of deal. Okay. And, uh, I did, I did a bunch of those for that guy. I mean, this is back in the day when, uh, they were trying, they were first starting to do, um, tactical knives so okay. like you had this is this is when pat uh, pat crawford melvin pardue for sure i'm not sure about crawford uh but they started making knives and just beat blast the whole thing i sell yeah. you a folder for three four hundred bucks yep okay right yeah crank them out popcorn nuke it puke it done gun out your door here you go have a nice day <laughs> But um, these are the fixed blades are all B, you know, B blast, the whole blasted thing. I mean, we were using sand, uh, but, you know, nuke the entire thing, make, she make a sheath, you know, and try to keep the make sure the stain was dry enough so it didn't actually have a black streak. Hey, small <laughs> things. When you pulled it out of the sheath. But um, so, you know, he goes, I want an I want a switchblade knife. So I was thinking about doing this thing. And I'm going, OK. And I had a, and I had what I think was an interesting approach to a switchblade i didn't think about the knife part 
I thought about the lock part. All right, now here I am. I've got a mill. I've got no machining experience. I have, you know, uh, the concept of, of counting cranks, compensating for backlash on the screw leads. Uh, you know, precision was was just not amazingly attractive mm. at all. It was like, if it, you know, the less precision you had to do, the happier, you know, I was much more happy, much happier, low precision. Because, you know, Precision was precision. You know, you just had to do it right. You know, now later on, I got used to it and it wasn't a problem. But, you know, beginning there is like, this is scary. In mills, different sizes. The whole, you know, can I read the, can I read the, the barrel micrometer with no, my, no digital readout on it? Yeah. It can be intense. Yeah. Well, you know, head math and all that good stuff. Invert the, invert the signs. Forget to carry the numbers. Then the number's wrong. And you're like, why doesn't it fit? <laughs> It's just, yeah. It's just, carry you know, a zero or something like that. The, oh, it's not yes. a tenth as a thou. The joys of math in your head. Yes, exactly. And uh, back when portable calculators didn't exist. <laughs> Man. Or they were $150 for a, you know, TI. <laughs> and Texas Instrument was state of the art. But anyway, you get the idea. So you plugged your calculator mm-hmm. in, put it on the table, and, you know, and lo- and you're hoped it didn't go. Failed to compute. Yep. Anyway, um, so I came up with this. Uh, I, I thought about locks, and I said, "Okay, what is a lock?" Well, a lock is a pivot that might you, I could consider a pivot to be a washer that's spinning around, spinning around a post. And all I got to do to make a knife lock is stop the washer from moving mechanically. Right. Okay, and that was it. So I, I simplified it to that point. So when I got to the black knife, which was which was the second version of this, I realized that all I had to do was I could start at one point, go straight down with the end mill, come up, move over so far, go straight down. That was my pivot. Lift up, move over, go straight down again. Uh, oh, okay. And then cut out the tang where the button engages. Yeah, just round the tang. And it was done. So I could do it without having to be really precise hmm. because it would lock. So um, I went to my buddy, Ron, who I had gotten to be very close to at this point, And uh, I, I said, hey, what about this? You know, and he looked at it and looked at it and looked at it. And he says, you know what? That will work. So he took it to work. And... Um, he got with a friend of his. It was a uh, was this crustacean of an engineer, <laughs> very old man. Well, I mean, at the time, the guy was seventy. Sure. Uh, you know, uh, and he's long past now. Right. But uh, to to put this in perspective, the first knives, the the blueprints were literally blueprints. Hmm. And uh, he's the one that said use a coil spring in it. Uh, and that, that sort of thing. But, uh, the first ones we did, Ron made the very first one and, um, it worked. And that was a big deal because, you know, you, you ever done prototypes. It's, it's, it's not terribly often that the first one works. Yeah, it just works. Wow. Yeah. And works well. I mean, we, we got, uh, the only thing that actually went wrong with it was eventually, uh, the, what he did was he put an instrument bearing, in the pivot, uh, actual roller bearings. 
Mm-hmm. And the roller bearing. The lateral force. Yep. And the roller bearing exploded. Yep. Oh. So we went to a bronze bushing. Okay. And we didn't have problems after that. Uh, so uh, the evolution of that knife uh, from an engineering standpoint was kind of interesting because it went uh, – the very first ones, uh, the knife came around and slammed against a solid pin that was uh, pressed in uh, in plane with the blade into the aluminum handle. And yeah, I remember seeing pictures it's, of ones like that. It's not a very good way to do it. Yeah. Because the knife opened so fast because of that coil spring that it would eventually forge the aluminum. I had some of them where the buttons were frozen because the aluminum had forged down in, in between the button. Mm. So uh, it wasn't a good solution. So, uh, But we made the first, I want to say, 15 or 20 of those like that. And, uh, you know, Ron's like... I'm not doing this again because what he was doing, he was putting that sucker on a surface grinder and dusting off the edge of that pin, putting it together and trial fitting it and, and dusting it off again until it fit right. Oof. Yeah. That was a nightmare. He, he did like, pain the ass. he did like 15 or 20. I mean, he says no more. Not doing that. That. Golly gee, go figure. So I remember we were talking about it and we were in the airport in uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee, I think, and um, sitting in the waiting room, and I'm going, Ron, what if we put a set screw? And he's like, What are you talking about? So I had to explain him what I'm talking about. So instead of putting a solid pin, we put a set screw so you could adjust it. That worked like a trick. And uh, eventually, it went bad because it would it would the 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 blade would forge it into the aluminum, so it eventually got sloppy, but. Um, as a as a you know it's done it's a fix it'll last a certain amount of time that's what we end up doing so we made the first ones we made 80 of them and i had to hand grind every one of those blades Ugh. and uh rough oh, machine all the handles and then he did all of the precision stuff he did all of the uh we did the spring pocket here's a good one uh you ever seen anybody take a two flute end mill and they cut the middle out of it to make it make a, a center post pocket you, you essentially made an annular cutter. Yeah, that's exactly what he did. But I'd never seen one before. I've never seen so anyone actually like, make one like good. that. But yeah, and that was that was old school. He set the thing up at a surface grinder in a in a in a V vise. You know, lined that lined oh, what, the thing what up ID and, and yeah, ground the center out. By shot maker. Yeah, well, he just put a diamond wheel in and he ground he ground the center out of. He split it, so it looked like a tuning fork. Hmm. hmm. It was a two-flute annular cutter, and he ended up leaving a post in the middle, and it was perfect. Okay, I'm good. There you go. So, <laughs> I think I still have that one. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'd, ne- I'd never thought about it. I was like, what the hell is this? And he says, oh, that cuts this. I said, okay, now I understand. He didn't cut them on a rotary table. just cut them straight on the mill. Boom, done. So I was like, okay. But that's, you know, that's a whole lot of years of yanking a crank. So uh, Problem anyway, solving, so- man, right? Yeah, so we made the first 80 like that, and they were black Teflon-coated blades. And uh, they were single ground. They didn't have a clip on them. And the handles were pretty square, no flutes, and they were just rough chamfered around the outside because I had to do it with a with my baiter going 6,000 SFM because I refused to put the little wheel on there. It just was annoying. I was used to that Kalamazoo that was screaming. So I said, no, I'm going to put the big one. You know, so I put the big one on there. 
And um, so we made them like that. Well, now, uh, one of those knives, I believe it's one of those. I don't think it's one of the regular production ones. I think it's one of those. One of those knives is in the Navy SEAL Museum in Homestead. Wow. Like still to this day, probably. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because because uh, cool. the, the teams, uh, some of the teams, uh, one of which was, I think, was Team 6, bought them. And uh, they were using them. Uh, they sewed a pocket in the middle of their uh, wetsuits, right in the middle of their chest. Mm. And what was happening was at the time they were issued the Buckmasters. Yeah. And you remember the thing that looked like a looked like a boat anchor and felt yeah. like a boat anchor and cut like a boat anchor. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, well, they they strap those things on their leg. And, you know, if you think about it, what do those guys do? Well, they sneak into places. So they're going through the weeds. They're going through the brush. They're going this at night. The damn knife was getting caught on old fishing nets and all kind of garbage. Anything that passes. Yeah. So they were using our knife to cut the Buckmaster loose. (laughs) (laughs) Because they found out that our knife would open underwater. Uh, They tested that knife down to six fathoms. They had no issue. So just, just to be, terms, uh, I think that six fathoms is like uh, in a, in atmospheres. Now I'd have to do some calculations, but like six fathoms in water, which is pretty damn deep. Yeah. So, but just mm-hmm. just to be just to be crystal clear here, the this knife that you're talking about, about, no other knife before this knife had ever used a coil spring button lock. So like this, um, this not this, in history. That's not this, correct. Right. Okay. It, they, they had, if you look at the old switchblade uh, patent book that somebody put together, there's a whole booklet that's done. It's nothing but switchblade patents. Mm. Uh, I believe there are some coil springs in those books. Okay. Um, so it's it wasn't unknown. It wasn't but, completely unknown, but it wasn't right. in popular use. Well, you got to remember, at this time, there were no switchblades. Right. The exactly. only switchblades you could get, uh, the only switchblades you could get were the import switchblades uh, from uh, Italy, which were smuggled in, and those were the the pick locks mostly and side openers. There were a very, very few customs uh, that were being made. Uh, Jim Servin, um, oh, what the heck's her name? Judy Gottage, who learned from Jim Servin. Uh, but none of those were button locks. No, no. In fact, they were mostly they were mostly lockbacks. There you go. Um, right. So you had scale releases, or you had you had a rocker button that lifted a lockback. Okay, uh, right. As, as a latch, right? Uh, they weren't they weren't button locks per se. See, um, <clears throat> so that was the very first button lock. Now that. I should have patented that. Oh my gosh, I kicked myself. <laughs> I seriously kicked myself. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll get into the future of that night. So so there's wait, one. Before we get into the, the future, what years? Like around what years are is this happening? Uh, yeah, really I that. told you I'm horrid on years. I'm I sorry. Just I'm this is this is prior to 2000, right? Yeah. Oh, this, this is, is like, this is probably like. I would say this would be 83, 84. 
Yeah. I just want people to get an idea. It's almost 40 yeah, years yeah. ago. That, that's how I'm thinking this is like 10 years ago. This is like way past yeah. anyone yeah. else. Yeah. No, this is before anybody else was making switchblades. This is before Microtech existed. Um, we did have Benchmade. Almar was around. Yeah. Um, that's about all. Uh, but anyway, uh, interesting thing that people don't think about, and you'll appreciate this, uh, prior to this knife, this invention of this little round button, uh, every single lockback knife of any form, any, any, any locking folding knife at all, every one of them had to be hand fitted Oof. without exception. Yeah. You know, and here this was so one of the really big things about this was this was a knife that could come off of machinery, be assembled and work properly. Right. Essentially, if he got that patent, he could have retired a long time ago. A long time ago. <laughs> I had um, I had a prophet, prophetess. Uh, we were learning how to discern the voice of God. We're going to make a real, real brief aside here. And uh, I, you know, it was my turn to go up. She would pray with people and, you know, get a feel for this is what he said and so on and so on. And we pray about the same thing. So we just see what each one of us heard, felt, heard, whatever, whether you believe or not, it doesn't matter. It's just you get the idea. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, so she says, I asked her, I said, okay, just, you know, she said, well, okay, let's just pray about Reese. And so she did, you know, and she's over here going, hum, 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 you know, and I'm getting nervous. Because, you know, you got somebody that's going, you know, huh, 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 make it sound like, okay, great, I'm going to die when I'm, you know, in five years. Who knows? You know, you get all the scenarios run through your head. And uh, and and I got um, the basic generic prophetic kind of thing. This is what I heard was, you know, okay, you're blessed. You you know, you've got my favor. That, uh, that kind of thing, which, you know, it, it's nice to hear, uh, yeah. but it, it doesn't really tell me anything. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's like, thanks, but that's not really a whole lot of information. Tell me, okay, go go down the street tomorrow, talk to this man, and, you know, he's going to give you, you know, that's down, that told me something. (laughs) So she chimes up and he says, okay, he wants to give you his mind. Okay, fine. You know, and there was a whole bunch of things like that. And then at the end of it, she goes like this. She says, um, and at this time I had been, I had been making those knives for about, oh, five years. She goes, uh, Oh, yeah. And he said to tell you, he tried to do this for you once because he, he, oh, I'm sorry. Let me back up. Uh, He wants to make you a millionaire to finance the kingdom. He wants to give you ideas and inventions to make you a millionaire to finance the kingdom. But it's not for you to be in front of it. It's for you to be behind it. Okay. well, you know, fine. I'll receive I'll receive that. I'm good. All right. And he said, oh, and by the way, he tried to do this once before, but you weren't listening. And immediately through my head runs the stupid button for that stupid knife. That damn button. And I started to think about it, and I estimated that if I got a dollar a button in Royal at that time, it was roughly four mil a year. I mean, yeah, pretty much at this point, it would be an astronomical number. Uh, Because it was um, uh, the first person to rip the knife off was, ironically enough— Almar. Mm. And Almar. Oh, okay, I thought, I thought you were going to say someone else, but. <laughs> no. Gotcha. Almar. Almar. No, we get to Tony later. Almar. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Anyway, I was going to say Dalton, but okay. Uh, no, Dalton, Dalton. I don't even think Dalton was making knives. Not yet. I had not heard about Dalton making knives at that point. Yeah. 
Uh, although he probably made this 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 interesting little ripoff copy that was shorter, that that kind of looks like his style. But hmm. uh, that I don't know for sure because they weren't signed. See, ours uh, the the military guys all requested we didn't put any names on these, uh, and you can tell ours as opposed to the Charlie Oaks version that's still made now. Uh, more about that later. Uh, ours only had the diagonal grooves in them. Uh, they didn't have the groove that ran down the center of the handle. Okay. It's the groove that runs down the center of the handle and a belt clip. Hmm. So we had no name, no belt clip, and no center groove. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, but other than that, they're identical because the guy that made ours are making his. Yay. Anyway, no comment. Mm-hmm. Um, or no further comment, should yeah. say. Yeah, right. Of course, I have a really good – I have some really good Charlie stories to go through. Slightly later. <laughs> anyway, um, where was I? Oh, yes. Uh, as you go, uh, so as we went, you know, she, she's telling me this, but all right, to go back to when we were making the knives, um, I went in and this were coming up on my, our blade show. So this would have been our, our guild show, which would have been 84, 1984 in Orlando, uh, 84, 85. I'm pretty sure it was 84 because they gave me my badge. It says member since 85. So I would have been voted in in 84. So that would have been it. Yeah, it's fine. So our inner apprentice or whatever. Anyway, I think that's right. Or it could have been it could have been eighty two. I don't know how they did the dates. You'd have to find out. My badge wow. says eighty. My badge says eighty five. My old badge. Uh, so if they did the two years, they didn't count it. Then the then the year you were voting, they gave you that badge. Then it would have been two years before that. Whatever. That yeah, sounds complicated. Yeah. Yes, guys. I ju- I just I don't care enough to worry about it. Anyway, whatever the first year it was, it, I know it was the very first year they had the show in Orlando because yeah. uh, Frank Senefani talked me into joining the guild. I wasn't planning on it. Wow. And uh, I would go by and visit Frank a couple of times. Uh, I'd been making knives for a little while, hadn't made any folders at all other than these. Uh, and I was getting around to try to make these black knives. Now we had a, um, a little bit of the story about how to get, we got started with the black knives. We did those. They were very successful. We decided, okay, we want to make a run. Now, Ron Miller knew all these guys that were starting out in machine shops, and he knew two guys that had, had left, were used to work for AMP. They started out, and they started making – they made their own machine shop. They pooled their money, got themselves a CNC, uh, a VMC system, which back then was a very fat six figures – And uh, yeah, so it was like serious financing the whole bit. They were in a big, big building, you know, kind of half in between. Was it? um, So this is still in the 80s, right? Yeah. Did you see this machine? Oh, yeah. Was it manually written G code or was it one of the machines uh, that still ran film? If you know Uh, what I mean, it 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 almost looked like photo film that you put into the machine. No, 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 no. It wasn't a tape machine at all. It was a, it was sure enough, but it was, uh, it was an early one, obviously, Uh, but uh, I'm trying to remember the details. I want to say it was beige, which might make it like a tree or something. Uh, I'm just curious that around that time is when they were making the change. And I've never heard, I just told anyone who's ever ran one of those. I'm I'm, I'm curious about those tape fed machines. Um, they worked, uh, they, they worked the same as the other one. The problem was if you had an air, you had to redo the whole tape. Yeah, they're they're just interesting. I've never seen one in person or like seen like videos of them running on things. So I'm just curious about them. Well, the, the first they're, they're ones, pretty neat. 
the very first ones ran on tape that was punched. It had holes mm-hmm. in it. And like it a player piano? Continuous card machine. Like a yeah, like a calliope thing. Yeah. Wow. Uh, it took then, a CC that's fed by almost a record, pretty much. You, you, yeah, you feel weird. Yeah, you feel exactly. Film. exactly. I'll be the G code. And the second one, second iteration, they had uh, they had magnetic tape. Mm-hmm. Huh. And then after that, they figured out the protocols to actually transmit a program on a hard line, and that's what he had. So he had he had his CAD, and he ran the old AutoCAD. Uh, and he was uh, he was hardwired to the machine from the other room, and he did it that way. But um, oh, so that's one of those first. That was one of the first ones, the first hardwired machines. Then it's way back, yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, he had this one machine sitting all by itself in this giant bay. I mean, it was just like deserted all around it. You could park cars around the thing. And here's this machine. So they were expanding. They eventually became a very, very big company. Uh, they're still in business, in fact. But um, in any hmm. event, we went over there and uh, we got a quote on it. And we wanted to make 1,500 pieces. And wow. uh, the quote came back. Well, that's where the numbers fell out, right? Sure. You no, know, I, uh, you said, for, oh, yeah, for a run They don't want to know you're alive. Um, yeah. 1,000 gets marginal. 1,500 starts to get... Right, because you were able to spread out the tooling far enough to where it, it made sense. And that's really all that what that's all about. It's like this investment broker kludge deal. But um Yeah, you got to disperse the setup costs and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Making fixture plates and all this. He had um he didn't have pallet changers, but he did have a tool changer. And uh he had a tool changer there, and uh, like I was saying, it was a it was a big, big old VMC. Uh, big shrouds and all that, you know, which makes it look like twice as big as it really is. But uh, it wasn't a, it wasn't a small machine by any stretch of imagination. Uh, one of the things he did was he built uh, custom race car engines for the circuits. Uh, so, you mm-hmm. know, he, so the, the blocks and all that. So the guy knew what he was doing. He wasn't, yeah. he wasn't any yeah. kind of schlep at all. Uh, and he had a partner that was the the machinist tool and die guy. And the and, and the other guy was the uh, was the CAD squirrel. Was the computer guy, uh, but anyway, uh, I digress again. Anyway, he uh, they go in and um, they gave us a quote of uh, I don't know, I don't remember exactly. Uh, I remember that the entire run. Now this was the steel for the blades, having the steel, having the blades laser cut, uh, having them uh, ground. Uh, they were ground by a company called Interamco. Up your way, or the New York up New York um, Great Lakes way. I hmm. uh, don't know if they're still in business or not, but uh, they were doing. They were running a cam grinder, so we had to pay for the stupid cam. And the thing that always pissed me off about them is they would tell you up in front, but you don't you don't really realize this until you have to pay for it. Oh yes, it's average. Oh, we have an average spill rate of twenty percent. Spill rate, wow. Okay. Means they scrap twenty percent of your stuff. Thanks, guys. Yes. Oh, joy. I have. I have boxes. Seems like my career. Well, <laughs> you would think they could grind one or two until it's not set right. Nah, just run the whole. No, thing. they'll run a whole carousel, which is like thirty blades. Yeah, joy. Having fun. Mm. Are we having fun yet? 
Anyway, yeah, I'd imagine it was a little uh, harder to, to make quick programming on those as well. Like for me, I could just quickly select one, run it. Yeah, exactly. Minimal adjustments. They'll try it. It's a cam grinder. It's a cam. Mm-hmm. So the only thing you get to do is, is adjust the uh, contact contact point on the cam. So then you can do and depth of cut. You're done. That's it. You know, but I'm like, yeah. okay, good, dude. You can't tell that the that the grinding wheel is tilted too far because it only ground the it ground a uh, you know an inch an inch and a quarter blade like it was two inches wide. Duh. Yeah. Whatever. Anyway, get me started. On, don't get me started on the on the chef's knives that at one time were going to be nice looking switchblades. Yeah. Anyway, and of course you got all the sunk costs before they see them. Oh, we didn't charge you for those. That's nice. How who's going to pay me for how, how much it cost me to get them to you? But uh, anyway, we we so it was uh, twenty five thousand. Wow, all of them, which is pretty reasonable when you start to do the math. I mean, that's pretty reasonable. Yeah. I want to say they they were they cost us assembled and all. They were like thirty bucks, thirty one dollars, something like that. A knife, you know, yeah, twenty five thousand dollars back then. That that's that was a lot of money. That's a sizable amount of cheese right. there. So I was trying to get – I had this one guy that that I knew slightly. <sighs> Can't even remember his name now. It doesn't matter. Uh, but, uh, I mean, these people were all characters. This guy, he knew – I knew him through a guy named Ken Weir who owned a truck stop, but he was a knife dealer. Mm. And he would go and buy knives from Senefani because Senefani was like – four miles from this guy's truck stop and he'd buy knives from Senefati. Now to put this in perspective, uh, Frank Senefati made old school lockbacks, inner frames, the whole bit. His average folder cost at that time, 600 bucks. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and there were maybe a dozen guys that made fixed blades in the guild. He was in the second induction. He was not the founding. Hmm. He was in the first. He was in the first. Oh, okay. Batch. I see. Second induction. Okay. Yeah, second, second batch. induction. Second batch was Frank. Hmm. Um, interesting guy. Real nice guy. Real interesting guy. Anyway, I digress again. Uh, he was buying Frank's knives, and uh, <laughs> but uh, he knew this guy, and this this guy was uh, the owner of um, a cigarette and vending company. Now, three guesses. Who is the nominal class of people that own cigarette and vending companies in the 80s? The mob. Perfect. You got it in one. Okay. <laughs> and this guy, he was he was second generation, okay? Uh, but he was the accountant. And that's what nice. he started out. When he was 12 years old, he had an eidetic memory. So mm. did you ever watch did you ever watch the Untouchables? You remember that there was an episode yeah. um where they had the guy in there, they didn't believe him, so they had a whole bunch of people with calculators, and this guy would just call out numbers. And this guy vaguely. added all the numbers in his head. Yeah, you can vaguely, but you can imagine this. He's just yeah. he was just one of these math guys. That's who so you want to be an accountant. He kept the books for the mob for the Tampa mob. Wow. And, uh, you know, his dad owned Ideal Cigarette Music, which, you know, it's like a walking, talking, money laundering experience. Because Ideal Cigarette and Music? <laughs> Ideal Cigarette and Music. That was the name of the company. Oh, uh, yeah, like yeah, my favorite exactly. name right there. Oh, yes, exactly. Uh, well, they had a tin roof in the back of the building. And this guy walked out back one day in the middle of a thunderstorm 
and lightning hit the tin roof and blew him back inside the building and knocked him out. And when he woke up, he lost the memory. Oh, man. So they had to reconstruct all the books, but that ended his career as a mob accountant. So, um, so after that, he started. Uh, he was like seventeen. He started running, uh, running guns with his cousin on uh, his dad's Cessna down to Nicaragua. And nice. no, I'm not kidding. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, where do you find these people exactly? So, uh, and his cousin's still alive, and we still share stories about this guy. But um, in any event, I digress. I was the guy had plenty of money, and um, so I kept telling him, I said, "Look, you know, all I need is twenty five k." I'll give you all your money back plus 10%. And it's going to take pretty good. And which is pretty good. Pretty good. Then I will risk capital. I said, I'll give you all your money back plus 10%. And it's going to at most take me two years. Okay. At most it's going to be two years. Um, so, you know, and the guys hemming and hawing with me, I mean, I, you know, I'm, um, uh, I'm married at this time. Uh, so, you know, so like I'd be staying out all night cause this idiot want to sit in, uh, in, um, uh, Denny's all night and then jaw jack with me and try, you know, and I'll ask me questions about it and this and this and this and how to do this. Who are you going to sell them to whole, you know, all this on and on and on and on ad nauseum. And I'm like, okay, whatever, forget it. You know? So finally my dad goes, you know, Hey, I'll, how much do you need? I said, okay, it's this much. He says, all right, I'll finance it. Uh, and there's a point to all this aside part. It kind of sets this thing up, the story of the Guild Show story that you like. Um, the uh, so so I so he goes to he goes and hits his IRA up for 25k, gives us some money. We 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 get all these knives done and built, and we start selling these knives. So uh, what we were doing was uh, we were making the knives, putting them together. We paid this kid uh, uh, Chuck Oaks' son, in fact. Okay. Uh, uh, we paid Chuck's son a dollar a knife to put them together because we were too lazy to do it. And then, of course, we'd get trays full of these knives and we'd sharpen them. So 1,500 knives is a lot of knives. But, uh, you know, to sharpen all at once, yay. You get real sick of looking at them. Yeah, no kidding. But the uh, – uh, yeah, by hand, no less. But the um, – uh, we did it. And uh, – uh, do you want the sidebar on Charlie here, or do you want me to just keep going with the to the guild story? I mean, the Charlie part at some point is integral, just so, okay. so we know at this where point, where it is now. Charlie was going to Ron's church. Charlie had lost his job; he was working for the phone company, uh, I think, doing installs. And Charlie decided he was going to make knives, so he started blacksmithing and uh, got pretty good fairly fast. I don't know how well he sold or whatever, but Ron wanted to help him out. Now, here we've got a switchblade knife. Nobody's ever seen it before. It's robust. It works. It's solid. Uh, it's not a toy. You know, it's not one of the cheap little orange shoot knives that you, you know, that, that you might as well throw it away. It's, and it's not an import, you know, stag handle Italian stiletto looking knife that you really can't use for anything but sticking somebody. It's a knife knife. You know, and nobody had ever seen anything like this before. So they were selling extremely well. They were basically they were selling as fast as we pull them out. Uh, and we sold the first ones eighty bucks a piece. Mm. So that was you know a little better than double. 
if, if it was a low quantity, they were hundred bucks a piece. If you bought, I think if you bought ten or ten or fifteen, it was eighty. And if you bought fifty or a hundred, uh, or if you bought a hundred of them, they were sixty-five. Wow! At the okay. time, you know. So I mean, it doesn't take long for that to add up to a bunch of money. But right. uh, you know. So mm. anyway. Uh, so, uh, he decided to help Charlie, but, you know, needless to say, they were selling so fast. There isn't any reason for us to consign them. I don't need to extend somebody credit and look at my knives because I know the knives are going to be gone yesterday. Pay me, take them. You take the risk to sell them. Right. That was my attitude. Okay. But Charlie's like, oh, you know, I want to help him out. I'll help him out. So Charlie was our first consignee. Mm -hmm. And he became a salesman. Well, he started making so much not money selling the knives that Al Pendre was bitching at me. He says, "You got to quit letting Charlie sell those knives because he's not he, he's not keeping up with his blacksmithing and he's not learning how to do the job. Hmm. He's yeah. just he's just reselling knives to sell those damn switch because it was for the money exactly. So um, anyway, so that's the that's the starter of of Charlie. Mm. All right. So uh, we go on. We made about. All right. So we go to the guild show and uh, I go to the guild show. Ron didn't want any of the knives on it, around his table. I didn't want to put them on my table because yeah, I switchblades were a pretty serious thing then. Uh, they had not banned them from the guild show because you had right. Jim Servin and Judy Goddard there. Both high end though. But they were openly selling the switchblades. Well, you know, they didn't have a big science in switchblades. Right. But they also didn't go, you know, oh, let me hide this. Here comes a director. <laughs> uh, you know, it was later that they banned them specifically. Uh, I'm not entirely sure why. Uh, I mean, they were illegal, but I'm not entirely sure why they, you know, did it. Because, you know, it was it was kind of a wink, wink, nod, nod thing with the police on them because they're so high end. Who cares? Yeah, there's not street weapons, right? Right. So, but you know, you want to be a stickler, they would do that. And yeah. I got some stories on that too uh, later. Anyway, so we go in, and um, I didn't want them on my table. It was it wasn't so much the legality part. It was I didn't want to be known as the production switchblade guy. Yeah, I wanted cool. to be known for what I made. You know, I wanted my reputation based on my fixed blade knives, my what my quality, my design, my thing. I didn't yeah. want this product. You, you know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? No, I get it. Like it's yeah. just that guy making like yeah, exactly production. production okay, so right. I had this is my first guild show. Uh, I you know got my signatures and all that stuff. I'm in the back of the room, which is where you usually wound up. I'm facing the back wall, uh, and immediately behind me is Chris Reeve and his <laughs> wife. Now, mm. this is far enough back. He was not a citizen of the United States. He was still a South African over here on a visa. And uh, he did not have any kids yet. Right. Uh, so, you know, and he's facing the front of the room. Okay. Now, there's a guy. Uh, are you in the guild? Uh, no. I was kind of asked recently to do it, to enter, but... It doesn't really make sense nowadays. It just um, kind of seems no, like they're stretching for people. I would, I would recommend you probably not. Mm. Uh, it's, not it's not my market. It's just right. It's not the market, and and it's it's lost relevance. Yeah. Uh, I've had long conversations with W. C. Johnson, some of these other people that are that are mucky mucks, and I'm like, guys, you know, it doesn't make sense for me because it, it doesn't mean what it meant, and it's yeah. a shame. You know, it really is a shame because it used to mean you were in the guild 
that meant something. You know, that was hot damn. You're in the guild? Yes. Okay, let me look again at your stuff. Yeah. And now, pfft, eh. Well, I, I talked to him about it like two years ago. I just, like, at the, then a bunch of people joined on, and I just, I looked at the list. I'm like, the, like, I'm not a guild guy, honestly. I knew what I made and what the guild was. Right. And the people that were joining on, I'm like, oh, so li- pretty much the last five years, most of the guild guys died. And they needed modern people to, to yep. revamp the guild. And that, yep. that plan didn't really work. But I just always go on. I was like, oh, I'm not going to really bother. Right. Exactly. You have to go to the show in Texas and stuff like that. You got to follow the rules and do the well, events. Yeah, it, it's it's not quite as strict as you're thinking unless they've changed back. But it, do, it doesn't matter. I, I, I agree with you. Anyway. So I went to the guild show. It's my first year at the guild show. I'm facing the back wall. Chris Reeves immediately behind me. And the reason I asked about the guild is you would know this guy because they, they named an award after him, uh, Arthur Boggs. Hmm. All right. I think I've heard uh, the name Boggs. Yes, he was a he was a big time collector. At this time, the guy had to be in his seventies. I mean, he had to be in his seventies. Uh, thinning gray hair and all this. And he wore these, he always wore these shirts to, you know, uh, you've seen the grandpa shirts that they, they got square bottoms. You don't tuck them in, but they got a frill down the center and they got packets in the front. Yeah. Okay. That's what he wore all the time. Constant. And, uh, I knew the guy cause he would come by, uh, he would come by the gun shows and he was a big time collector. I mean, I didn't know it at the time, not really, but, uh, and a multimillionaire, which I also didn't know at the time. Uh, I'm going to back up just a little bit. And he was uh, right after my dad gave us the money to start it. We were already doing this. Uh, they had the Gator Cutlery Show, which is just a local uh, little club show. They still have that now. Yeah. In fact, I just did it last weekend. Uh, nice. One best to show. Congratulations. Congrats. Yeah, it was. Uh, well, it was a little funny because they uh, you ever been to a show where you could enter best of show? Uh, that's a different one. Exactly. So, you know, they had, you could enter your knife for best of show. So I'm like, all right, whatever. Uh, and I had a, um, uh, I had a, a direwolf in, uh, from, um, uh, the, 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 the Wang guy, the Oriental guy. Oh, yeah. Uh, 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 Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Wang or something like this or, uh, anyway. Yeah. Uh, uh uh, I'll think yeah, of North, North Carolina. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, he sent me the knife. He didn't like the Damascus blades. He wants stainless. He wants polished stainless. So I had the knife in the shop. So I oh. decided, okay, what the heck? I didn't have any knives to put out. I mostly put out supplies. And uh, so I put the blades back in it. There's nothing wrong with it, obviously. And I took it to the show just to have something golly gee. And I decided on a total lark. I did. I'd enter the thing, and I went over to ask San- Sandy that I know well. That's the She's the show promoter. Well, the club does it, but they run it. Her and her husband run it. And Dan's her husband. Uh, and he has like six tables. He makes knives. He also has a collection of stuff that he sells out of as a dealer. So uh, I said, where do you want me to put this? You know, and she said, well, I don't know. You know, she, so I said, okay, I'll put it in Best of Show. And here's the kicker. I'm looking at Best of Show. Yeah, I just put it in just, what the hell? I'll put it here. And because uh, there were only two other knives entered. All right, one knife looked like a, and it wasn't made by Loveless. It just had, it was the pattern. It was, it looked like a Loveless drop point hunter, but it looked like okay. somebody sharpened on a rock. I mean, it had gouges up the side of the blade. Mm. Now, mind you, this is entered in Best of Show. Custom. So I was like, really? Okay. And then the other one was a Bowie knife of some some kind that would also look like somebody had been carrying in the brush for the last 20 years. 
I mean, these guys would beat. So I said, okay, well, no competition here. I'll just put it here. So I put it in Best of Show. What the heck? You know, it's a plaque. Throw the throw the cabinet. Something else to put there. Some lumber. And um, you know, why not? Right. Yeah. The ones that mean something are the Blade Show ones. <laughs> uh, but um, anyway, so uh, Dan walks by the table. He walks completely past the little categories things. and just glances at him, walks past, and he stops, and he backs up, and he turns around, and he looks at my knife there, and they're both showing, just closes his eyes, and shakes his head. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> so needless to say, I won that. So anyway, um, but all right, the Gator Show. Okay, so Arthur comes up to my table at the Gator Show, and he's asking me, you know, how's your project going with the Black Knives? You know, because I told him about them, and I said I was looking for funding and all this. I said, and I said, yeah, I've been looking for funding and all that. And so he says, uh, how much do you need? And he goes in his pocket and he pulls out his checkbook, and he's getting ready to write me a 25K check. Ooh. And I One was like, days. Arthur. Well, I mean, it was just it was just the thought that you don't really know me well. Yeah, but he was the kind of person that was just sure. I'll trust you. Here's the money. I mean, those you are know, rare. Those are rare people. Super guy. And you know, I told him I said, no, my dad already did it. I don't need it, but thank you very much." And and all this. So anyway, so fast forward to back to the to the guild show. So I go to the guild show. I got a box of these things, and they're under the table. Nice. Uh, and they're all in. You oh, know yeah. what Nalfax is. Uh, is that that um like knife cutting? It's a little stretchy thing. It's a little different yeah. colors. Plastic. You put a little hexagonal. Yeah, yeah, you can cut. It's like yeah. mash. It stretches. It's, it's, my my battle songs covered in that red stuff. Yep, it's also it. desiccant, right? Uh, no, desiccant is no. Uh, something that pulls moisture out of the air. Oh, oh, I thought they, those they, were they also make moisture. The one that I got, moving. yeah. So the one that I have, they make. I don't know if they made them back then, but they also make one that sucks out moisture, not to oh. rest the parts to protect the parts from. That's rusting. cool. No, yeah, no, they, they didn't. They didn't now. have. I don't think they had that back then. Um, fancy but uh, anyway, it, so it we put the them same, all. Just, yeah. yeah, they just put. It's just a different way they do the plastic, probably. Um, I did anyway. So we had these things, and I put them all in Naltex because I was too lazy to buy envelopes or boxes for them. I said I'm not going to spend the money, so I just bought rolls of this Naltex stuff, and, and we cut it all up and we stuffed them in this Naltex. So we just had stacks of these things in green Naltex. All right, and I had a stack of paper bags, uh, like lunch sacks. Okay, so Arthur sachets up to the table. I'm sitting there with my knives. Nobody's really looking at them, so I haven't done anything with them. I go, hey, Arthur, how you doing? He says, hey, you got any of those knives with you? I said, yeah, I got some under the table. He says, okay, give me some. So I reached under the table, and I put them all in a paper bag, you know, and I roll the paper bag up, and I hand them to him, and he opens up the bag, and he stuffs them all in his pockets and, you know, uh, throws the bag in the trash can. He wanders around the room, comes out about 30 minutes later, fans out a bunch of hundreds on my table. I says, give me some more. Okay, so we did this all morning, you know, mm -hmm. and and around about eleven, you know, one o'clock, I get a tap on my shoulder, you know, and it's this guy behind me that I don't know, you know, uh, Chris Reeve, and he goes, "Oh, excuse me, um, uh, we were wondering, are you are you selling drugs?" <laughs> and I'm going, "What? Wait, wait, wait what?" He says, well, you're, you're just putting things in a paper bag underneath the table. And, and this guy's coming by and he's handing you a stack of $100 bills. And, and you still have all your knives on the table. So, you know, we're, all, we're on a visa. And if we're going to be raided, we'd like to go eat. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> so that was a, that was the start of a, of a fairly good friendship with Chris Reeve. <laughs> there you go, though. What was but, he uh, selling so I, in? Just like uh, uh, before? 
the Sabenda. He had the. He did not have. Uh, he showed me a couple of prototype folders. I do not think he had any of his production line like the Sabenza at yeah, the time. The he, he had those. He had those sure. fixed blades yeah. that he made out of solid round. Wow! All right. Uh, out of uh, I think they were uh, A two. Far out, man. Are you selling drugs? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, excuse me. Are you selling drugs? Yeah. And his wife's all nervous and stuff, and it, it just you know, and I was like, what? You know, and and so we had this little explanation. I said, no, 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 it's this, you know. And he was like, wow, this is just really neat, you know. So we had this long, uh, this long conversation, and he showed me some stuff that he was working on, and uh, oh. uh, he made a um, a custom version of an open L. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, the barrel. With a, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, with a little, with a little like a the barrel lock that rolls. Yeah. And There's he put the he device. put the whole barrel lock on. Uh, he put it on uh, uh, continuous. Uh, ball bearings with an integral pin and a little screw. I mean, it was just, it was like a That's freaking cool. watch. Wow. <laughs> it was like That's a damn watch. I mean, you could take the edge I'm of your thumb and roll. I'm going to see if I can try to Google that. That's pretty cool. Uh, I don't know if he ever made them. He just, he just felt like doing it, huh. but he was, uh, yeah, he had a, he had another knife that instead of a liner lock, it was a, um, uh, it looked like uh, uh crinals on a castle. It, it had two teeth, one on the top, and one on the bottom. So it had no stop pin. It just locked on both sides of the blade and locked against the center. Yeah, that's some surprisingly mechanical prototyping. Um, for, well, that's that's his thing. You know. He was a tool guy. guy. Oh, he has, yeah, a, yeah just, he has a patent that he called it the barrel lock. I found. Yeah. I found some photos of it. Hmm. That's sounds teacher. Yeah, neat. but saw the uh, but saw the prototype of that. That was pretty. That was pretty tripping. So we just basically talked shop. I mean, I wasn't enough of a machinist to follow half of it, but I was, you know, I remember this. I can't remember. I actually remember the open L, but anyway. So, uh, so we had a lot of fun doing that. Mm. And uh, we still, every time I see him, we still reminisce about that, which is a bit of a trip. But um, so let's see. Uh, after that, we got into. Um, uh, somewhere along the lines, I ended up getting a call from this guy named Tony Marfione, mm. uh, who, at, who at the time was working for um, uh, he was working for uh, Reed Knight as an estimator. Was that so? That wait, so that would have been Knight's Armory. Uh huh. Okay. Knight's Armory as an estimator. Uh, which means he didn't turn a crank. He would bid on building part X. Gotcha. So he was not a machinist to my knowledge in none of this. So, uh, and he spent hours on the phone asking us, asking me, and he called Ron too. Uh, how do you, how do you do this time? How do you do this? How does the lock work? How does you like this show? So we just openly shared with all of that. Yeah. And he went and took, and he created, I do believe it was the UDT. Was uh, the first one. So it would have been probably the, the mini the UMS. Bigger one, the bigger one, not the bigger, not the small one. Okay. It was the full size one. MUDT then, yeah. M-U-D-T. Which he then I think just called UDT, yeah. Right. And the he was living in an apartment at the time. Uh, bought him a Burr King grinder. And he was on the second floor. He would push the Burkin grinder out on his porch and grind so all the dust blew out on the parking lot on top of the people's cars. Nice. 
Uh, yeah, well, we thought so. Anyway, but he had uh, he had the guys at Reed Knight. He played them to Moonlight and used the machines after hours and make all the handles. But the blades, uh, he couldn't grind the blades. So he sent all the blades to Chris Reeve. So Chris Reeve ground the first ones. Which is pretty insane. Huh, okay. Uh, which is which is a tidbit that seems like nobody knows. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's the start of Microtech. And then so not it, long after that, he did the, he just moved out. So at this point, so, I mean, now these are getting to some interesting specifics, but when Tony approached you and did he, so, I mean, he asked to, to build this push button switchblade or in a manner of speaking, bear in mind, I never met him. Right. He just kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah. He just called me on the phone. But see, I don't mind, you know, I don't mind sharing. Right. Well, no one ever because, thought it would turn into Well, like, exactly. You know, I yeah. mean, but, but see, even if it did, I mean, at the most, I would have said, hey, throw me a bone. Sure. You know, big deal. All right. Because it's like, you know, and of course, and you're exactly right. Nobody thought, OK, this is going to be a multimillionaire, million dollar deal here. But, you know, it was still, it was like, hey, I'm making mine. I'm doing this. You know, you're doing your thing. You're not copying my design. Whatever. So the, the style of the handle and the blade were different enough to... Uh... Right. Well, he took a rough shape of the handle and he changed it a little bit. I did not ever really like the styling of ours. I never really liked it. It has all the sex appeal of a rock. You know, of course, mm-hmm. I guess rocks can be sexy, but it, it it's it wasn't utterly ugly, but it wasn't it certainly wasn't as ugly as the first 80 or er, I saw one of those this weekend. Oh. <sighs> can I have this? <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, and I don't collect anything, but yeah, it, it OK, but yeah, so it was it was the thing. You know, so I never really thought they were great. He made he made a sexier knife. Yeah. Now, whether he literally designed it or sketched it out or what, I honestly don't know. Sure, but it was a it was a much smaller knife. It was a much more um, thought out knife. It had a taper to it, so it wasn't as thick. You know, Tony's uh, an amazing designer for sure. Like that has to be said. Yeah, it's it's just you know, yeah. I don't take anything away from his design. I don't take anything away from his sales ability. Oh yeah, I can sell ice to Eskimos, and probably has because he got bored. But so, um, <laughs> so the development of this knife, and then Tony enters the picture. Yeah. Um, and then it, it it so this continues to develop and build, or sort of other things well, happen. Where do we go from there? I don't have anything to do with him. Right. Um, uh, other than eventually going over there and meeting him because I had never met him before. We went our way, and eventually we got to the point we were selling uh, selling the black knives. We were selling them to the uh, uh, the uh, FBI uh, wow. counter terror groups in uh, Quantico. That's awesome. Uh, that was a trip. Yeah, it's like okay, I can legally ship these. Yeah, you're shipping them to right, exactly. Yes, that's, that's pretty awesome. I'm cool. Yes, I'm cool. It's okay. But uh, you know, we and then we had various situations we had uh uh you know charlie wanted 
I don't know. I think I think he wanted either either he was getting yeah at one point he was getting nervous that you know the FBI was going to come see him because we were like hey you know Charlie we're consigning knives with you we're selling knives to various people you're doing most of the sales uh, through your little contacts and so whatever so I mean he sat there he said oh you know I want you to do this and do some of the shipping and all this and I'm like why should I do that right. You know, uh, I mean, I was the I was the punk kid that didn't really care that he was big and kind of intimidating and I didn't care. You know, I, so basically he was telling me he's want to do this. I said, Charlie, listen, let me explain it to you this way. You're getting these knives at a substantial discount. Uh, you know, you're selling them to whoever you sell them to for whatever you sell them for. You're keeping all the rest of the money. You're getting them on consignment so you don't even have to pay for them up front. Um, if anybody knocks on my door and wants to know anything about these knives, you know, officially, I'm going to say, uh, officer, uh, you know, I do in fact make these knives. I mass produce these knives, all the parts and everything are made in the state of Florida. They're assembled in the state of Florida, which is legal for me to do. And they are all, uh, shipped over and delivered to a man named Charlie Oaks. Here's his address. And after that, I don't know what happens to him. Bam. And yeah, basically, Charlie, I'm a, I'm gonna throw your ass under the bus. <laughs> you know, I don't care. I'm completely legal, and I'm fine. Yeah. You want to sell them? You want to make money? You want to send them to Texas? You want to do whatever? You, that's your that. Have a blast. Go for it. Somebody's got to do so it. At right? that time, where were you actually legally allowed to sell them? Uh, aside aside yes. from Monaco. Well. Yeah, you well, okay. Under federal law, you could sell them to anybody that's you know, uh, police, military, law enforcement, or one armed man. Uh, that's in federal law, okay, which supersedes state law. The yeah. uh, the state laws are split up pretty funky, uh, and state law is pretty vague on it. It basically is you can't carry it as a concealed weapon. But it doesn't say anything about ownership, or at the time, it didn't say anything about ownership. Yeah, there's uh, there's only been a couple states ever that really like ownership. were okay with that. Like I think Rhode Island forever, for some reason, has always been kind of switchblade friendly. Um, but that's because the mob was in Rhode Island. So right. yeah, whereas you know New York State wasn't a big deal. New York City, forget it. Yeah, totally different. Uh, I live in New York City. Uh, yeah, you know yeah, exactly you what much. I mean. <laughs> it's a little easier to carry knives now because the gravity knife law. I still carry anything I want, and I just hopefully will get away with it because I have a bunch of my business cards. And I'm like, hey, just come over. I'll sharpen your knives. Right, but, like, right, right, right. I'm just oh, hoping yeah. for the best. Yeah. Me, yeah, knife maker. I was maker. Make Bill McHenry and, and Jason Williams oh, used yeah. to come down to the Gator Show. So I got to know them fairly well. And, yeah, they're talking about, yeah, we'd, we'd walk down the street. The backpack is full of switchblades. You kind of hope nobody mugs you. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. Huh? Go to the New York Customs, yeah, because <laughs> they lived in Jersey. Four timing. Yeah, wow. that was, new, that was uh, different. Different era of New York. That is most definitely a different era of New York. Yeah, that's when it was in the hotel with the little narrow stairs and all that stuff. Uh, which I actually never went to. Uh, right. Just heard about it, so it was you know one of those things. But anyway, um, so. Charlie one day finally got to the point where he uh, convinced Ron that the FBI was closing in. Uh, you were going to get arrested any minute, so you should stop making the knives. Now, um, 
Otis. Uh, yeah. So, so I'm like, uh, okay, well, I'm going to keep making them. And Ron's like, no problem. Go ahead. Uh, I'll still consult. I'll do this, but I'm not making it anymore. He wanted to distance himself. That's fine. I didn't okay. care. It didn't matter to me. So uh, I had all the contacts at this point and everything else. And I'd still, I'd still cut Ron in for his cut. It didn't make any difference to me at all. Um, you know, and I had a kind of a mixed relationship with Charlie. I mean, Charlie's Charlie's Charlie. If you've ever met Charlie, you understand that statement. The um, anyway, uh, uh, looks like a tall grizzly Adams without the muscles. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway. just the beard and the hat. <laughs> the beard and the hair. The it's, hair. It's, it's, yes, he, he has. Yes, really straight hair, uh, and the accent. Um, but anyway, so uh, he convinced Ron to get out of it. I got somebody else to uh, to, to finance it. Was we were going to do it and all this, and so Charlie calls me up on the phone, and he goes, "Hey, I, I, I understand you're gonna you're gonna make some you're gonna make some more than twist plates." I said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, I, I got a I got a um, I got a sales list here. All my customers; these are all verified customers that buy lots of knives from me. You know, and I'll sell you my sales list for uh, two thousand dollars." And I'm going, I don't want it. So, well, what do you mean you don't want my sales list? I said, well, I don't need it, Charlie. So, well, what do you mean you don't need my sales list? I said, Charlie, listen. About a week after I get done with these knives, like all I tell the first two people, word of mouth, every single one of your dealers will call me. So why should I give you $2,000 for something I'm going to get for free? Click. Yeah, pretty much. It was a detail. So yeah. consequently, so then the next thing he did is he went back to Ron and said, Ron, what we need to make one more run. I've got a guy who wants to buy wants to buy fifteen hundred of these knives, you know? And at that point I figured out that probably what was happening was he had to do, he had a guy set up to do it. So he was gonna let Ron shut it all down and we weren't gonna make any more knives and he was gonna cut me out of the mix. And go in as a partner with Ron now, so he get fifty fifty on it, and do that. People get a little yeah. strange, yeah, man, when that know, kind of money's involved. It's real unfortunate. Yeah, it is uh, business McWeird, sure. whatever. But in any event, so we ended up making three thousand on the last run, which was fine. And uh, we delivered them to this guy. Fifteen hundred of them went to one guy, and the guy showed up at Charlie's. Uh, Charlie lived in Saint Petersburg. I don't know if he still does, but it wasn't a very a terribly good part of St. Petersburg. So uh, this guy was so nervous picking these guns up and and probably had a right to be since I think not too long after that, about five years after that. He uh, he's probably still doing federal time for switchblades. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I know. Okay. But, but it's <laughs> ironic for it. It's for imports. They didn't oh. get any grief for ours at all. It was for importing them. Well, importing them has always been illegal. Yeah. Still is, listeners. You Still cannot is. import switchblades. You cannot import switchblades. So anyway, he goes. Uh, this guy showed up, and uh, this is another funny story. Um, we're at Charlie's house waiting on this guy, and this guy showed up with his buddy, and they're both uh, they're both armed. And this is when you could, you didn't have a concealed weapons permit in Florida, so they're illegally. Armed, you know, back of the waistband in the jackets, and it's only eighty degrees. <laughs> nice. And, uh, and they're nice wearing cold out. And they're wearing multiple money belts under their clothes because they're going to pay us in cash. 
<laughs> wow. So, so, in cash. In cash. So we, you know, fifteen hundred dollars at at seventy. I think there were seventy five bucks because Charlie kept twenty five bucks, and Ron and I split sixty five. Hmm. But it was it was uh, it was fifteen hundred times seventy five. I don't know what the math is on that. Pretty good. dollars. Let's say. Good amount now. <laughs> it's a lot of money. Oh, here's my calculator. It's hiding under the Oreos. Uh, let's see. 75 times 15. Oh, no. Don't do that. 1500 equals 112,500. There goes that Texas instrumental. Yeah. Well, that was a, that's a, something called a caliber. What? Yeah. Five bucks at Walgreens. Anyway, uh, uh, I like the big displays, you know, you can see them <laughs> as opposed to the little tiny microprint ones with the little tiny buttons that you're filthy and you're going, I can't push the button. So, I mean, sort of eventually the bad, I mean, I, okay. Would you call that bad blood with Charlie then or now? I'm not putting on the spot, but the worst thing that Charlie ever did was Ron got bone cancer and was dying in a bed. And Charlie went into the machine shop and said, hey, let's make some more knives. Yeah. Didn't ask. Didn't do. Now, I've forgiven Charlie. Sure. You know, uh, and so I don't care. And this is way, 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 way long ago. Uh, I even asked Charlie if he wanted to, if he wanted me to help him redesign the knife to modernize it because it still uses that straight, straight shank button and that set screw. Yeah. And, uh, you know, back when we were going to make a we were going to make a smaller knife, uh, I wanted to move the button into the handle because I'd seen what um, uh, Mel Pardue had done. Okay. Mel Pardue had mm-hmm. done. Uh, uh, see, initially, I, I thought about doing the tapered button, which is okay. what everybody does yeah. because self adjusts. And, the, you know, I asked about it and basically the machinist poo-pooed me because they say too difficult to program it. And, you know, eh, sort of, you know, guys figured out a ways to do it. So it's now not as big a deal as it was then. And I honestly, I just think they just didn't want to. They didn't want to futz around and change the, you know, change the CAD and all the stuff, you know, and do this. And I think that was it. And I was just the, you know, I was the non-machinist, you know, squirrel with strange ideas. So, eh, whatever. So they didn't want to do it. Uh, Pardue was the first one to actually build it that way. And he did that because he want, he didn't want it to hit the set screw. He wanted it to hit a stop pin, which is the way they do them all now. But, um you know, and that's we wanted to do that. But the first one to knock off the knife was Almar, and you'll like this because this is how Benchmade ended up making ended up making switchblades. And that, dear listeners, is where we'll pause today's story time. That was simply part one of the Reese Wayland interview on the Bladeology podcast. Please stay tuned for part two coming out shortly. Thanks again for listening, and from everybody at Bladeology, wear safety glasses, tuck in those detent tracks, and thank a knife maker. Have a good night.